Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 384 with Bruce Daisley. Hopefully you enjoyed your holiday season and you are not experiencing drudgery with returning to work in the new year. But if you are, then this is the perfect guest for you because Bruce is going to share the key practices that bring more joy and fun into the workplace. You'll learn one, two hacks for restoring your personal equilibrium at work. Two, the benefits of connecting with your colleagues through laughter. And three, why working more than 40 hours a week is often a bad idea. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, or the links to items we've referenced, you'll find it over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep384. Here's some cool stuff about Bruce. As European Vice President for Twitter and host of the UK's number one business podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, he is at the center of the debate about the way we work and communicate and how that's evolving. Daisley has been one of the Evening Standard's 1,000 Most Influential Londoners for four years and is one of the Debrett's 500 Most Influential People in Britain. Campaign Magazine asserted that Daisley is, quote, one of the most talented people in media, end quote. So thanks to Bruce for hanging out with us for a bit. And thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. You'll hear from him. Help you dig it. Here we go. Bruce, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Well, I'm, I'm really flattered to be asked. So thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, I, I'm excited to dig in. And uh, I believe Dan Cable introduced us and, and his was one of my favorite podcast episodes. So there's a big, big expectation, Bruce, that you're going to bring it. Thank you. Well, let me try my best. Certainly. Well, you know, you have defined yourself as work culture obsessive, which is a, a good turn of a phrase. And, and your body of work seems to seems to show it. You know, on top of a pretty demanding job, you, you've put out a, a great podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, and you got a book coming out. What do you mean by being work culture obsessive? Yeah, I think, you know, the interesting thing for me, I, I work at Twitter, and I'm, I'm fortunate enough that when guests used to come to the, the London Twitter office from all around the world, they would say, almost without exception, they say, wow, this is just an incredible office. We, we love the culture here. And I'd heard that previously. I used to run the UK team for uh, YouTube at Google. And all the time, people used to either wander past my team or interact with my team and say, wow, what a special team. And so unfortunately, I was misdirected into believing that that was down to a, a magical skill that I had. And I think a, a couple of years ago, I became aware that maybe people at my work weren't as as motivated or or as happy as, as they once once were. 
And I became obsessed not with sort of drawing on my own hunches about how culture is created, but more thinking, I wonder how I could arm myself with evidence. And I think that's the, the critical thing I've done, really. I've, with the passion of trying to work out how to improve work culture, I've set about trying to get evidence of how to do it. So in the course of the last couple of years on my own podcast, I've really just uh, pestered and tracked down some of the people who've written the most interesting books that I've found. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough, I think, that when you contact someone who's written a magical piece of research, something that's just really fascinating, compelling, and they're not in the promotional time for it, they're often very willing to talk. So I'm so I'm so lucky to have got people who have written just some of the most fascinating books and, and got them to talk to me. So, so I guess that I, I've got a fascination in how to improve work and being evidence-led on how to do that. Oh, well, very cool, very cool. But well, I want to dig into to all sorts of fascinating bits of research. And and so maybe could you orient us right now? So you are a vice president of Twitter for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And so what does that mean or what does that entail in terms of your job? And, and what are some of the, the practices that, uh, that you're seeing really make a big impact in terms of bringing about the joy of work? Yeah, uh, so it's a good question. So I, I think when you do a, a regional job like mine, it goes without saying that I'm fortunate that I've... I've got very, very capable people in all of the markets we operate in. So, you know, the, the, I've got a formidable person working in Spain. I've just got an incredibly talented person working in the UK. And so my job really is to try and provide sort of bursts of energy for those people. So, you know, someone contacted me today asking for some help with a contractual issue. Uh, effectively, I guess I'm someone that, the, the leaders in those countries can call upon when they d- need additional support. So it's uh, I'm like a, a, a router, really. I, I sort of direct energy and I direct resources when appropriate and, and try and stay out of the way when appropriate as well. So it's sort of an interesting, an interesting role. And I guess, you know, the critical thing I would say in terms of how I've learned about the, the joy of work from, from those countries, I think, the thing that the UK is very similar to the US on is that increasingly more and more workers are uh, sort of eating at our desks. And when you go and explain that to someone in France or someone in Spain, you say, guys, it's really important we, we start trying to take lunch breaks. They look at you very confused. Mm-hmm. They, don't, they don't really understand what on earth you're talking about. And it's because those cultures have really recognized, historically recognized, the importance of lunch breaks and the importance of the, of the, the social magic that's created in those interactions. And unfortunately, it's, it's the more Anglo-Saxon uh, part of the world that economized on those things. So for me, in understanding work culture and, and understanding how to improve work culture has been a real excursion into understanding the, the different national cultures around the world and and what we can learn from them. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to touch on that national piece there because the engagement data on workers in the UK is even worse, you know, by a pretty good margin than it is for for workers in the US. Do you you have a a comment on what could be driving that there? Yeah. I mean, to give those figures, I think the engagement figures for US workers, I think, you know, all of us, if if we looked at these numbers cold, we'd say, I think the, the US engagement is 20-something percent. I, I can't remember top of my head. And the, the figure for UK workers 
is is eight percent. Eight percent of British workers feel that they are actively engaged in their job. The only solace I can provide to, to the British is that the the lowest in the world is actually the French. And according to the, the Gallup survey, the Gallup Workforce Survey, three percent of French workers are actively engaged in their job, so, even with the lunch breaks. I know how about it. <laughs> so you know, so there's, there's certainly a global crisis of engagement. I mean, we, we, we seek so much of our own identity from our jobs. And if you look at the evidence, people who do jobs are uh, happier, they live longer, they feel more fulfilled in life than those who don't do jobs. So, so jobs play a really important part in our self-esteem. But quite often, they're not set up correctly. They're not, they're not focused on us achieving things in, in the, the way that we would most like. And so we end up becoming slightly disengaged or sometimes very actively disengaged in the, the jobs that we do. Uh, right. Well, and I'm curious it, it, from your observations across countries, you know, are there particular mindsets or, or policies? I wondered if, if it's, a, it's a little trickier. My understanding is in some European countries, it's trickier to say, fire somebody. And I, I think sometimes it's, it's trickier to, to find a job. Is that fair to say as compared to the U.S. I wonder if that had a role yes. with it, with regard to you know finding fit. It's, it's a little bit, a little bit of obstacles there. Or do you think that's a factor, or what's what's behind it? Yeah, I think I wouldn't necessarily say that those things have a direct impact on how engaged people are in their jobs. So you see, you do see a variance across Europe, and you do see it's not necessarily that that you know when it's hire at will and fire at will that that workers are more engaged. There's, there's definitely cultural pl- factors that play a part. There's definitely elements in the job that play a part. Some cultures historically have been more hierarchical. So some national cultures have been more hierarchical. And when you look at workers, one of the, the key factors in people being engaged in work is the ability to speak up to the boss. It's sometimes called psychological safety. So the, the ability to, to put your hand up and say, I don't think this is right. When you see something that appears to be maybe slightly uh, against our expectations. And the willingness to speak up to the boss is one of the most powerful indicators of workplace culture. And there are definitely some cultures that are more hierarchical, but that some cultures uh, where speaking up to the boss is really frowned upon. So definitely that plays a part. There are, there are significant cultural differences between different countries. Intriguing. So you unpacked some of this in, in your book, The Joy of Work. What would you say is the, the main idea or thesis there? Yeah, I split it into three parts. The fundamental part for me was when I was setting out on my own process of discovery, I was interested in finding evidence about how we could bring some of the work that's been done by experts into the world of work. So there's no shortage of psychologists, of anthropologists, of of people who've studied neuroscience, who've given us indications of better ways to be working. And the challenge for me was that a lot of that evidence wasn't reaching the workplace. So I split the book into three parts. The first part is just to try and restore restore us to a position of a more balanced equilibrium. I think it's fair to say that the stats suggest that half of all office workers report feeling burnt out. Uh, but that's also common to uh, nurses. That's also common to teachers. So the state of feeling burnt out by our jobs, by feeling exhausted by the amount we're working, is, is becoming increasingly ubiquitous. Half of all of us feel it at any point. And so the, the first part of the, the book is really just to, very simple ways 
to try and restore our equilibrium. To So I call that a section of the, the book Recharge. And some of the sections there are, are often really small interventions. I'll give you one example. One of the most effective things that anyone can do to feel less overwhelmed by their job is to turn notifications off on their phone. Just like that. This is a really strange one. Because when you tell people that this is one of your interventions, they often look at me thinking, okay, this book's going to be really trivial. But let me give you the evidence on that one. Half of all people, so this was done by someone working at a mobile phone company, of all things. He's working at Telefonica, a European telephone company. And and he was trying to get people to turn their notifications off for a week. And he couldn't get enough people to do it. So he said, okay, if not a week, will you turn your notifications off for a day? To just give you an indication of how powerful this is, two years after he did that intervention, half of all the people who made that decision to turn their notifications off still had them turned off. What, one day. One day, <laughs> two years. So people, people, when they try this, they say, you know what? I was just able to get a bit of calm back to my life. I was, I was able to, to not keep checking that, that email icon that keep, kept popping up with Black Friday offers or with whatever it was that was, was drawing me back there. I was given a bit of headspace. So half of all people who did that still had it turned off. So consequently, with that in mind, as soon as you realize you can improve work with lots of little hacks, with lots of little changes, then it becomes an exercise in finding what are the other hacks. One of the other things that I found that was fascinating for creativity, when we look at creativity, there's, uh, there's many different ways to categorize the brain, but, but one of the, the most common systems is that science, scientists talk about the salience network, the executive attention network, and the third one, the one I'll talk about, is the default network. So these are these three networks that sort of op- they, they operate across the whole of your brain, but they do different functions. The default network is this fabulous part of the brain, which is, so it, t- it tends to be where we, we dwell when we're daydreaming. It's still where thoughts organize themselves and bounce around. But often when you say to people, when did that idea come to you? It's at a time when it, the default network is running our brains. So I'll give you an illustration. Often people say, oh, I had a good idea while I was in the shower. I had a good idea while I was going for a walk. That's not uncommon. Because that's the time the default network is, is daydreaming and allowing little thoughts to interact with each other, to bounce off each other. As soon as you know that, as soon as you know that creativity comes from the default network, you start thinking of what are the ways to activate that. And one of the most powerful ways to activate the default network is to go for a walk. You know, if you're, if you're trying to brainstorm, if you're trying to, to get ideas down on, a, on a, a piece of paper, then often we find ourselves stranded in a, a lifeless, sort of pretty dull meeting room, often frowning into our laptops or frowning onto, onto a whiteboard. And actually, one of the most powerful things you can do is go for a walk. Uh, 81% people, of people saw an increase in ideas, and their ideas went up two-thirds when they did that. So it's a really powerful thing. But the default network can, can be activated in so many different ways. My favorite example of the default network is the guy who wrote uh, the West Wing TV show. He also wrote the social network film, a guy called Aaron Sorkin. And he, he stumbled upon this. No one told him this, but he stumbled upon the idea that his best ideas came to him when he was in the shower. So as a result of that, he had a shower installed in his office. And uh, 
in a sort of fabulous interview. He was interviewed, I think, by a Hollywood Reporter magazine, and uh, he was asked about his his habit for showers. He takes eight showers a day. <laughs> <laughs> he takes eight showers a day, and he was asked about this, and he said, "It's not that I'm obsessively clean. You know, that's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because the sense of free thinking, the sense of sort of free association I have in the shower." just gets me past any roadblock. It gets me past any sense that I'm stranded in my thinking. And I, and for me, as soon as you understand that, you start thinking, right, then when am I allowing my default network to, to play and to create? And the answer quite often is, is pretty infrequently. We fill our meeting, our day with meetings, with emails. We're not giving ourselves time to, to think and dream. Well, I, I love that example in that it's... It's, it's sort of an extreme action. It's like, hey, I've made this observation and it's really working for me. So we're going to go all in. <laughs> Install the shower, <laughs> do it eight times a day. That's such a cool example. Exactly. And I want to dig into that notifications a bit, not to get too nitty gritty, but, but let's talk it. Now, is it, the key thing about the notifications is simply the, the beeps and buzzes from our phone or is it like everything? Don't pop up on my, my phone screen visually. Don't give me a red badges. Is it sort of like all notifications or just the ones that can interrupt you from other stuff? Yeah, it's all of them. It's all of them. But what I will say, Pete, is that it, it gives you a real mental availability. My own experience of doing, of doing this and all of the interventions, these 30 interventions in my book, which unfortunately it's not being published in the US for another 12 months. But um, there's 30 interventions in, in, in my book, and I've tried all of them out. But the, this, this one is you have to turn off all notifications. So you turn off the number that sits on that, on that email app, and you turn off the, the thing that slides down on your screen. But what happens is that I find myself in the morning, and I go through that routine that we've all become accustomed to, which is you wake up, you check your message apps, you check your, your social apps, and then it used to be that I always checked my email. And increasingly now, I forget to check email. I'll find myself heading out on my journey to work. And then an hour into my journey to work, or just as I'm arriving at my office door, I think, oh, I haven't checked email. And it, for me, it's incredibly liberating. Because often that sense when you're checking email, but before you get to the office, it either disrupts your morning commute, and you find yourself trying to answer something badly at the kitchen table, or it, it sort of it creates a, a sense of sort of claustrophobia that you, you want to answer it, but you don't have time. I, of all the interventions, as, as I said, uh, this is the most powerful one. And it's just an illustration, I think, that we can push back against the demands of work. We often feel helpless in the face of, of work, but this gives us scope to really push back and, and try and feel more refreshed, feel more recharged, really. That's, that's really cool. I like that term claustrophobia in terms of you're right now. It's what I got a piece of you in terms of your, your mental attention. It's there. It's like, oh, I want to reply to that. I can't right now. You know, what will I say? Maybe this. And so now your your brain is consumed with that and you're sort of shortchanging your opportunity in the default system mode of, of transportation zoning out to to get those creative ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so you said 30 interventions, and so I know we, we won't have time to hit all 30, but if I may invoke perhaps the 80-20 the rule, uh, if, <laughs> if six of them are, are yielding 80% of the value, can you give us what are the other half? Yeah, well, the, the, the first 12 are all these recharges. Then probably the bit of the book that I found most fascinating when I was researching, and 
it was something that the more I researched it, the more I became addicted and compelled to the science of it, was this idea of human sync, this idea of human synchronization. And uh, the, the science of this is remarkable. If you put a group of people who are strangers singing together in a choir, you observe that their endurance, their fortitude goes up. And I'll, I'll explain to you how in a second. When you put rowers together and you get them to row in time with each other, their fortitude and their endurance goes up. They, they become more than the sum of their parts, remarkably. So it's choirs, uh, rowers. When you put people together who dance, they, you see the same. And when I mentioned the fortitude, that's one thing that scientists have found. They find it very difficult to measure the endorphin levels in people, but they find it very easy to measure the consequence of those endorphins. So what they often do, and it sounds, it sounds a touch callous, but they, um, they inflict pain upon people. All right. And so scientists, they, they tend to put these armbands around people's arms, sort of like the thing that you might have worn or taught, taught a child to swim in. But if you imagine you keep inflating those armbands until it starts creating a, a, a bit of pain on the arm of the subject. And what they found was that people who'd rowed in time with each other could withstand twice the amount of pain of people who'd just rowed on their own. People who'd danced together withstood more pain than people who'd, who'd not danced together. People now, is this while they're rowing and while they're dancing or just sort of at a, at a resting state? Yes. Yeah, so, so uh, no. So immediately when they stop, they can withstand the pain. And so it creates this magical thing. So it's, it's really interesting when we're thinking about teams, the choir is a perfect example. You put strangers together and you get them to sing together. And actually, when you look at the evidence afterwards, they often say, I feel a connection to the person I sung with, even when that, that person was a stranger 10 minutes before. So it has this remarkable quality. So as soon as you understand that there is something about us being in sync with others that seems to develop this sort of fortitude. It seems to develop this connection. Then you start thinking, okay, are there other ways that we can access this? And there are. There's one of the, one of the most compelling bits of science about sync I've seen. The scientists took about 4,000 unmarried couples who were living in a, a distant relationship. So they, they were maybe sort of, one was in the West Coast, one was in the East Coast. And so, they, so these they, are like romantic relationships? That's right. So that's distance, right. okay. That's right. And they tried to understand which of these couples stayed together. And what they found was the couples that stayed together over the period of time that they were being observed had one thing in common. And it was the ones who phoned each other every day to talk about trivial things. And so when we, when we have this human sync, when we, have, when we take time to, to get in sync with each other, and that often is conversation, but you know, it, clearly the most magical form is this, is this physical interaction. But we can observe it. The couples that spoke together every day, uh, their relationships were more enduring. And we see, we see lots of examples of this. One of the, the other bits that you, that you see in this science is that there's a, a wonderful researcher who's looked at a lot of this work, a guy called Robin Dunbar. And Robin Dunbar, um, he, he looked at animals and he observed that one of the ways that animals get in sync with each other is they do mutual grooming. So it's no longer acceptable, Pete, unfortunately, for me to, to stop and pick fleas off you. Well, I'm just thinking I've got a great hairbrush, dude. I just come <laughs> on over and... <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe this is why we see teenage girls do this. Hmm? They, you, see that, you see that endorphin levels rocket through the roof when, when animals spend time in mutual grooming. However, he said 
that he observed exactly the same behavior when humans laughed together, which is really interesting. So you've got this phenomenon of human sync that chat activates it, spending time around and, and in synchronized activities with others activates it, but also laughing with others activates it. And the consequence of sync is that it tends to make us more bonded with the people we're working with, tends to make us have a greater allegiance with the people we're working with. So anyone who's thinking about how to make work better, thinking about how you can build some, some maybe sort of collective laughter into the, the working environment is a really important thing. Now, of course, strangely, a lot of us have stumbled upon that through our own experience. We've maybe been in companies where the company meeting at the end of the week, there was always a guy who stood up and made everyone laugh. And that place seemed better than this place, but we couldn't put our finger on why. And I think this, for me, is, is a good piece of science that says, as human beings, we shouldn't be ashamed of finding benefit in some of these things like laughter. We shouldn't be ashamed of feeling more connected to our teammates when we spend time laughing with them. Mm-hmm. Well, well, that's really cool. And that just gets me thinking in terms of how, how to get that laughter going. I remember one time I was in an office and we had just a little fun event in which everyone was, well, you might dig this, former YouTube, uh, everyone <laughs> was to, to bring one of their, their favorite YouTube videos. And, and we just sort of like hung out and, and that's what we did. Everyone, there's maybe 20 people. Each person brought a YouTube video they thought was great. And, and then we all just laughed together. And, yeah. and it, was, it was a whole lot of fun. Well, one of the best books on laughter is by a, a scientist called Robert Provine. And Robert Provine said, it was a really interesting thing. He said, that even though these, I think, somewhere in the region of 70,000 uh, scientific papers, so peer-reviewed papers into pain, these, uh, these less than 100 scientific reviewed papers into laughter. So it's, scientists often feel it's a bit frivolous to, to investigate laughter. And so he, he decided that he was going to do one of the biggest pieces of research into to laughter. And he, and he pulled together all of everyone else's research. And here's what he found. He found that um, laughter quite often in an office. So I've talked there about optimizing an office for laughter. But he said often, often in an office, Laughter is around things that aren't necessarily the funniest things in the world. And we, we often find, we find ourselves laughing with colleagues at things that wouldn't necessarily get on their own Netflix special. But he said in, in many ways, laughter, the way he describes it, is in many ways, laughter is like a human's bird song. It's like the sound we make to feel connected to each other. And actually, one of the things that laughter signals is a wonderful bit of science that if you look at how animals play, one thing that dogs do is they often do a thing where they lean forwards on their front two legs. It's sort of very similar to the yoga position, the downward dog. And, and scientists who look at that say that that signals that no harm will pass here, that dogs know that if they lean forward on their front two legs, that even if they look like they're about to bite each other, they know that it's, that it's a signal that things are safe. And uh, one scientist said to me that laughter signals the same for humans. We laugh to signal we're all friends here. This is just, you know, we're, we're connected with each other. Oh, that's so good. And this is bringing me back to my, my days at consulting at Bain. And, and one of their best, the best lines in their recruiting materials, I think they're still using it, is we laugh a lot, which is true. And, and then one of my favorite sort of 
events we had, they, they called it the Bane Band, in which people would change the lyrics of popular songs to to reflect sort of the, the dorky nuances of the consulting experience. Yeah. So like time after time would be like slide after slide. And, and so it wasn't super hilarious, but it was it was your colleagues that you recognized up there being kind of silly on stage. And, and you just sort of laugh a little bit like, oh, yeah, that, yeah that's our life. Slide after slide. <laughs> and it, it, it has such a powerful bonding effect. I remember we would all rush to to get with our, our favorite colleagues and, and have chairs next to each other. And if someone was going to the bar for a drink, nobody wanted to leave their seats. They, oh, get me one. Yeah. Oh, get me one. Oh, get me one. Someone's coming back with seven drinks in their hand somehow. Yeah. Isn't it interesting, though, that, that so often, and especially in when times are difficult, so let's imagine the last few years have been difficult for a lot of businesses, that you, one of the things that you know there from your own subjective experience, backed up by the science that I've done, is that laughter made you feel connected and made you probably in truth, want to work harder for the people around you. But when times are hard, we find ourselves saying, you know, now's not the time for laughter. Don't let the bosses see you, see you laughing in the, in the office. We, we often have this idea that somehow laughter is frivolous, somehow unnecessary. It's a distraction from the job rather than it's forging a link with us and, and the colleagues we work with that's going to make us do our best work. Hmm. That's good. That is good. Boy, I, I said, just keep them coming, Bruce. You know, is there <laughs> laughter? Any other big ones you'd want to share? Yeah. I mean, you know, th for me, th that was so fascinating because the idea of laughter. But I think probably the, the um, one that's been most talked about in the, the last few years is the idea of psychological safety. And this is the, the idea I think I mentioned earlier that you, the willingness to speak up to the boss. And I was really interested. I met a member of the, the equivalent of the Navy SEALs, a, a member of the, the special forces in the United Kingdom. And he told me, he told me about their tactic of, of reaching this. And psychological safety is this immensely difficult thing to achieve. You know, when teams feel willingness to speak up to the boss, what you tend to find is it, it produces a fluidity of, of, of discourse. It, it ensures that you don't end up in a situation where the, the whole of the company knows that something's bad, but the bosses are asking them to do it. If you look back at some of the, the recent memorable uh, corporate failures, Nokia was famous for it had a culture where people were instructed if they couldn't be positive, don't, don't do anything. And so as a result of that, when they were faced with the iPhone arriving and, and people starting to question whether their smartphone was good enough, the people who had dissenting voices and maybe wanted to speak up were really clearly told, don't speak up. You know, this is not this is not the time. There's no value in speaking up. So what I think what we've learned is the businesses where they can encourage this psychological safety are incredibly powerful. And this is when uh, the conversation I had with a member of the, the elite military came in. He told me a really simple thing, which was they have a, a daily debrief. They have a at the end of every interaction, when they're out in the field, and this is a combat field, and maybe they've they've just been uh, on a, a deployment in Afghanistan or or in some sort of war torn part of Iraq or wherever, um, and he said at the end of every day, they have a quick stand up, and they all gather around, and he said it should take no more than ten fifteen minutes. It's while we're still in our combat clothes, and he said the way it works is that. 
he describes what happened that day, and uh, then he he will say what he did wrong, or what he felt he could have done better. Then he invites everyone else to discuss what happened that day, and the very act of a leader saying, "Here's what I did wrong," and demonstrating that they aren't infallible, that they have got vulnerabilities, is an incredibly powerful access point to everyone else doing the same. Psychological safety is this really elusive quality, and you see businesses talk about it increasingly. But I, I love his simple access point for that, because so often we come out of big meetings and we come out of interactions with, you know, we come out of big meetings or with client interaction or we come out of a review. And firstly, we often gather the feedback a week later or we'll send an email around everyone saying, oh, that went well, any thoughts? And of course, you lose specificity in that because you lose the sense of people know that that there was that one answer that one person gave that wasn't right. You lose specificity. But by taking time afterwards and the leader being the first to step forward and say, here's what I did wrong, seems to give a really powerful access point to people feeling that they can share the same. So again, you know, these aren't, I don't think these are, um, they're not going to be revolutions that are going to be patented by someone. They're not going to be, they're, they're, they're on their own, they won't transform a business. But the thing that was fascinating for me was following the, the evidence of what other people have done as an access point to improving the jobs that we do. That's fantastic. And particularly when you think about, you know, military in which, you know, rank is, is just so clear and you think that you need to, to be strong and to be, be a tough leader who's, you know, being entrusted with people's lives. Has, if, they, if they can do it, anyone can do it. Right. He told me a fascinating thing. He said to me, the biggest mistake that anyone makes about the military is thinking that we give orders all day long. He said, uh, he said, the decision making is often far more consensual than you think, because if we found ourselves just giving instructions that were unwelcomed, it would be a failure of leadership. And that was a real revelation to me. We've got this idea that soldiers are just given marching orders and told where to go. But he, he said, no, far from it. You know, they, they very much regard themselves as people who are studying and learning from the world of work and wanting to improve upon it. So for me, it was just a, a revelation to speak with, with someone who had that experience. Oh, fantastic. Well, well, tell me, Bruce, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, probably the one thing I will say is that the, the uh, overwhelming uh, debate right, right now in the world of work is the amount we work. And there's been a, certainly a contribution to this discussion uh, this year by Elon Musk. I think um, he doesn't he doesn't make the best poster child for the 120 hour work week. But uh, but Elon Musk has a couple of times this year said he works 120 hours a week mm -hmm. and that uh, he he feels that nothing good can be accomplished at less than 80. Uh, well, you know, he, he said 40 hours is, is not enough to work. And he feels that you need to work 80 hours a week to achieve anything. And the, I think the wonderful thing about that is that there's no evidence for it at all. And in fact, when you actually invite people to, to make evidence and, and to gather evidence on these things, you see that either we're lying to ourselves, that we're not working 80 hours, we're, we're, but we're working 40 hours distributed across a week. I was chatting to an investment banker today. 
she was telling me that she used to leave the office at 10 p.m. every night, maybe 11, sometimes 12. And I said to her, wow, and, and how was it relentless all day? And she said, no, 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 no. It was the culture, though, that you didn't leave till 10. So there were there were times when we we weren't working especially hard. She said there was a lot of time for for downtime and laughter, but the culture was you didn't work, you you didn't leave till ten p.m. So you know, lie is some sometimes work is the lie we tell ourselves. We're not being honest with ourselves. And the wonderful thing is, the more you look at the evidence, there was some fabulous evidence that I found that really the most that the human brain can really work, and most of us work with our brains, is around 55 hours a week. And after that, the marginal gains for each hour actually are negative. So, you know, when we work 70 hours a week, we actually achieve significantly less than when we work uh, 40 hours a week. And as soon as you identify that science, as soon as you realize that that's the case, you start thinking, okay, well, maybe my objective should be to work 40 good hours a week, to be energized, but then to value my rest as much as my work. And for me, that's the path to enlightenment here. If we can start thinking, rather than doing 70 exhausted hours a week, let's do 40 good hours a week, and that's a good week's work, or less. I mean, if if people want to work less, then by all means. But I think the, the more that we can get balance, it's, it's going to help us achieve greater creativity. I am right with you there. All right. Well, so now, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Yeah, you know, this is a quotation that's from, they often say, certainly in in the UK, they often say that all quotes ultimately are attributed to Winston Churchill. (laughs) (laughs) So if you say something, people will say, yeah, originally that was a Churchill quote. And this similarly, albeit that this is the mantra of the the UK team, uh, the cycling team, one of the most I often don't use sporting metaphors, but it's one of the most accomplished transformations of, of the last 30 years, uh, the, the medals that the, the UK cycling team has won. But their mantra is this. Their mantra is never stand when you can sit, never sit when you can lie down. And what they mean by that is effectively preserve your energy because, you know, energy is finite and use your energy when you're uh, you're ready for your most important action. Don't waste it. Uh, don't waste it at tr- trivial moments. And for me, as soon as you think about that, there's a similar quotation um, about our brains. And it was in a book by a guy called Daniel Leverton a couple of years ago, about three years ago. And uh, I can almost remember this quote ver- verbatim. He said, our brains are configured to make a certain number of decisions every day. And once we reach that number, we're unable to make any more, irrespective of how important they are. Right. That's mm. that's a game changer for me. because And the, the science behind that, if, if ever, anyone wants to look into it, is called ego depletion. But the um, but as soon as you realize, okay, so me running around and, and working from seven in the morning and doing all these things and reading all these papers and doing this, then going to this meeting, then answering all these emails, it's zero sum. You reach a stage in the day where your brain can no longer do any more. And as soon as you realize that, then that cycling team mantra becomes really important. Never stand when you can sit. Never sit when you can lie down. If, if we're going to achieve the most we can achieve in work, it's not by working longer and harder. It's by using that 
finite gunpowder we've got in our brain for the most important uses of it. Oh, perfect. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? Yeah. I mean, it changes for me all of the time. I loved this wonderful book by a professor from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology called Sandy Pentland. He's, he's called Sandy Pentland. And the book is called Social Physics. And he um, he took some badges, sort of like the, the name badges that we might wear around our necks to, to get into most offices. And he turned them into sort of microcomputers. And then he used those badges to start tracking the interactions that happened in offices. Hmm. And I have to tell you, when I read this book, I was blown away by it because it starts telling you the truth about what goes on in offices. I, honestly, I sat there, like, this is, this is like magic. And what he found was emails contribute about 2% of the output to offices and meetings account for about the same. Most important thing that contributes to what goes on in offices is face-to-face chat. Is face-to-face discussion. It accounts for two-fifths of everything that's achieved in an office. And probably, Pete, you've witnessed that there's less chat going on in offices these days. People are busier than ever before. They often put on headphones as a way to, to cope with an office, an open plan office. And so people are doing, they're, they're finding less time for chat. And I think for me, seeing evidence, and he built up like the biggest the biggest amount of data of face-to-face interactions in offices ever. And he was able to track this and it became just, it just, it was eye-opening for me what we were able to learn from it. Oh, that's cool. Thank you. And how about a favorite tool, something that helps you be awesome at your job? Yeah. I mean, that's a very good question. I mean, I, it's certainly not, uh, I, I love Twitter. I mean, I, I work at Twitter, obviously. I love it. First and foremost, I, I used it. Probably the thing that I find has transformed the world of, of learning more than anything else, though, is my Audible app. I love Audible. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a keen runner. And so for me, listening, sometimes I'm listening to a novel at the moment, which is such a wonderful palate cleanser. But, you know, listening to the latest book, it, um, for me, it's just a revelation. Mm-hmm. And a favorite habit? I think probably the most important habit that any, any of us can have is to try and get as much sleep as possible. And uh, and I I try to get seven and a half hours sleep a night, normally with good success. But I'm not 100 percent sure that the sleep is always the highest quality. But that's what I I try to do. And is there a key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks, and they retweet often? Yeah, I mean the the thing for me is that some of the things that I've I've mentioned here, to some extent, the state of modern work is that we all feel guilty about work. We, we go home with 40 emails in our inbox. We didn't get back to that person. We didn't do this. And for me, the, the biggest learning that I've had this year is that all of the science suggests that creativity is destroyed by stress. And so in, as, as creativity is going to increasingly be the most important asset in our toolbox for, for uh, managing the world of work, then we need to recognize that stress kills creativity. And so focusing on that all the time will help us achieve more in our jobs. And if folks want to learn more and get in touch, where would you point them? Yeah, they can. Um, I, I always welcome people hitting me up on LinkedIn. I'm very uh, willing for people to connect to with, with me there. I've also got uh, social media. So you can find me on Twitter at, at Bruce Daisley. Or you can search for the podcast, which is which is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, I, I would say the, the best thing I would say is 
take another look at the way that you're working. I found that quite often I felt that I was the exception. We all think we're the exception, right? You hear you hear that the most that humans can work is 55 hours, and your first response is not me. I can work longer than that. And I found when confronted with all this data, I did exactly what everyone else did. I argued with it. And then I found myself on a Monday night sitting at the kitchen table, emailing at half past nine. And I thought to myself, what have you actually emailed in the last hour? And I hadn't emailed. I'd reread one email four times. I'd gone and got myself another cup of tea. I'd, I'd changed the music three times. I hadn't done an hour of work. However, what I'd done is I'd deprived myself of an hour's rest. And I think be honest with yourself about work. Work is the lie we tell ourselves quite often. Mm, that's awesome. Bruce, thank you so much for, for sharing this good stuff. Uh, it's a shame us uh, Yankees have to wait an extra year for your book, but but thanks for, for teasing so much so much goodies here. I'm really excited to, to put them into practice. Pleasure to talk to you, Pete. Thank you so much. I was really struck by what Bruce had to say with regard to the notifications. If people just try one day of not having notifications, like years later, they about half of them, right, still didn't have the notifications going on their phone. So I have taken that step and I have found it indeed oh so liberating to not have even those little red badges. Like it takes just a tiny bit of energy to ignore the red badges. Like, I know it's fine. It's fine on my phone. And now I don't have them except for the one that says I should update to the latest iOS. It seems like you can't turn that one off in settings, the iPhone people, but every other one, they're gone. And I find it does provide me with an extra sort of, of peace or, or less kind of stimulation, distraction, pulling me away or effort to ignore stuff. Kind of like just having a tidy workspace is, is helpful. Having a tidy, non lots of notifications, non badges on my phone has been similarly helpful for me in that world. So I may well keep this going for years, just as the research suggested many people did. So hope you dug that. Maybe give it a try. Enjoy the new year in such a way. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F384. Hope you'll push subscribe. If you do, you'll catch our next guest. It is Hal Gregerson. He is the director of the MIT Leadership Center and he has just a brilliant approach to getting better answers, sparking creativity and innovation in a real fast way. The question burst. I'm totally using this in my training programs, integrating it in the future. So I think you'll dig this tactic and, and I open up a bit as he shows me how the tactic is used in practice with a live demo. So a real fun one. That's next up, Hal Gregerson. Until next time, in peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 